Welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Countdown, Rachel Maddow, In These Times, The Young Turks, NPR, and The Time Is Now. The stakes couldn't be any higher, as I said earlier, in the world in which we live. There are, there are, there are extreme elements that use religion to achieve objectives. He was talking, of course, about extreme elements using religion in Iraq. But an hour later, Mr. Bush posed with officials from the Southern Baptist Convention. It is described as the largest, most influential evangelical denomination in a new book by the former number two man in Bush's Office of Faith-Based Initiatives. The book, Tempting Faith, not out until Monday. But in our third story tonight, a countdown exclusive. We've obtained a copy, and it is in a devastating work. Author David Quo's conservative Christian credentials are impeccable, his resume sprinkled with names like Bennett and Ashcroft. Now, as the Foley cover-up has many evangelical Christians wondering whether the GOP is really in sync with their values, tempting faith provides the answer. No way. Quo citing one example after another of a White House that repeatedly uses evangelical Christians for their votes while consistently giving them nothing in return. A White House which routinely speaks of the nation's most famous evangelical leaders behind their backs with contempt and derision. Furthermore, faith-based initiatives were not only stiffed on one public promise after another by Mr. Bush, the office itself was eventually forced to answer an even higher calling, electing Republican politicians. Quo's bottom line, the Bush White House is playing millions of American Christians for suckers. According to Quo, Karl Rove's office referred to evangelical leaders as the nuts. Quo says, national Christian leaders received hugs and smiles in person and then were dismissed behind their backs and described as ridiculous, out of control, and just plain goofy. So how does the Bush White House keep the nuts turning out at the polls? One way, regular conference calls with groups led by Pat Robertson, James Dobson, Ted Haggard, and radio hosts like Michael Reagan. Quo says... Participants were asked to talk to their people about whatever issue was pending. Advice was solicited, but that advice rarely went much further than the conference call. The true purpose of these calls was to keep prominent social conservatives and their groups or audiences happy. Let's pray together. They did get some things from the Bush White House, like the National Day of Prayer, another one of the eye-rolling Christian events, Quo says, and passes to be in the crowd greeting the president when he arrived on Air Force One or tickets for a speech he was giving in their hometown. Little trinkets like cufflinks or pens or pads of paper were passed out like business cards. Christian leaders could give them to their congregations or donors or friends to show just how influential they were. Making politically active Christians personally happy meant having to worry far less about the Christian political agenda. When cufflinks were not enough, the White House played the Jesus card, reminding Christian leaders that, quote, they knew the president's faith and begging for patience. And the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives? According to Quo, White House staff didn't want to have anything to do with the faith-based initiative because they didn't understand it any more than did congressional Republicans. They didn't lie awake at night trying to kill it. They simply didn't care. Quo relates one faith-based promise after another. Billions of dollars in funding and tax credits going unfulfilled year after promise after year. He recounts one specific funding exchange with Mr. Bush. Bush, $8 billion in new dollars? Quo, no, sir, $8 billion in existing dollars for which groups will find it technically easier to apply. But faith-based groups have been getting that money for years. Bush, 
$8 billion. That's what we'll tell them. $8 billion in new funds for faith-based groups. Why bother lying? Quo says the faith-based initiative had the potential to successfully evangelize more voters than any other. According to Quo, the office spent much of its time on two missions. One, trying and failing to prove Mr. Bush's claim of regulatory bias against religious charities hiring who they wanted. Quote, finding these examples became a huge priority, but religious groups had encountered very few instances of actual problems with their hiring practices. It really wasn't that bad at all. Another mission, lobbying the president to make good on his own promises. How? Quo says they tried to prove their political value by turning the once bipartisan faith-based initiatives into a political operation. It wasn't just discrimination against non-Christian charities. One official who rated grant applications told Quo, When I saw one of those non-Christian groups in the set I was reviewing, I just stopped looking at them and gave them a zero. A lot of us did. The office was also, literally, a taxpayer-funded part of the Republican campaign machinery. In 2002, Quo says, the office decided to hold roundtable events for threatened incumbents with faith and community leaders, using the aura of our White House power to get a diverse group of faith and community leaders to a nonpartisan event, discussing how best to help poor people in their area. White House Political Affairs Director Ken Melman quote, loved the idea and gave us our marching orders. There were 20 targets, including Saxby Chambliss in Georgia and John Shimkus in Illinois. Melman devised a cover-up for the operation. He told Quo, it can't come from the campaigns. That would make it look too political. It needs to come from the congressional offices. We'll take care of that by having our guys call the office to request the visit. Quo explains, this approach inoculated us against accusations that we were using religion and religious leaders to promote specific candidates. Those roundtables were a hit. Republicans won 19 out of those 20 races. 76% of religious conservatives voted for Chambliss over the decorated war hero Max Cleland. And Bush's 2004 victory in Ohio? That, quote, was at least partially tied to the conferences they had launched there two years before. By that time, Quo had left the White House, concluding, quote, it was mocking the millions of faithful Christians who had put their trust and hope in the president and his administration. Amazing. Bush knew his so-called compassion agenda was languishing and had no problem with that. If you would question Mr. Quo's credibility, you should know that his former boss also quit the White House, complaining in his one public interview that politics drove absolutely everything in the Bush administration. When the president talks to God, are the conversations brief or long? Does he ask to rape our women's rights and send poor farm kids off to die? Does God suggest an oil hike when the president talks to God? When the president talks to God, are the consonants all hard or soft? Is he resolute all down the line? Is every issue black or white? Does what God say ever change his mind when the president talks to God? When the president talks to God, does he fake that drawl or merely nod? Agree which convicts should be killed, where prisons should be built and filled? Which voter fraud must be concealed when the president talks to God?
The real, the deep truth is that the elites in the Republican Party have pure contempt for the evangelicals who put their party in power. How do you Everybody, know that? And because you know I know that? them, because I grew up with them, because I live with them, they live in my street, because I live in Washington, and I know that everybody in our world has contempt for the evangelicals. They and the evangelicals know that, and they're beginning to know that even their own leaders sort of look askance at them and don't share their values. So this gay marriage issue and other issues related to the gay lifestyle are simply tools. To get That's elected. exactly right. It's pandering to the base in the most cynical way, and the base is beginning to figure it out. And that was a cut from the Chris Matthews Show this weekend with Tucker Carlson and Chris Matthews discussing Republican contempt for evangelical conservatives. Every day here on The Rachel Maddow Show, we poke a sharp stick at the soft white underbelly of American politics. Flipping over the day's news to show you the slimy, scheming political tactics at work underneath. Today's political tactic, I'm not embarrassed to say, lip service calling yourself something, describing yourself a certain way, describing what you do a certain way, putting all the right convenient labels on something and expecting that no one will ever really care whether all those labels, all those descriptors actually reflect the truth of who you are and what you do. This came up a little bit in my interview yesterday with Richard Vigory, the conservative activist who says President Bush calls himself a conservative but isn't. My take on that is slightly different. I I think conservative activists want to say Bush isn't a conservative because Bush has been a really bad president. So rather than acknowledging that a real conservative like Bush, a real right winger, is bad at running the country, they would prefer to acknowledge that Bush is a bad president but say he isn't a conservative. In my view, Bush is a conservative, a radical right winger in many ways, and and a lot of the reason that he has failed is, is because radical right wing conservative ideas make for bad government and corruption. That's what I think. But I can see why the conservatives might want to disown Bush, try to keep him from tarnishing what they think is their good name. The question today, though, is is about Bush and whether or not he is a Christian conservative. Is this an administration that is a right-wing religious administration? They advertise themselves that way. The Office of Faith-Based Programs, all the God talk that Bush does publicly, the National Day of Prayer, citing Jesus as his favorite philosopher. He has advertised himself, particularly to religious people, as a religious president who will do things in government that the religious conservatives want done. And he is playing them like a violin. David Quo was the number two guy in the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives at the White House. I have interviewed him in the past uh, after he publicly criticized the White House for not having actually done anything with the faith-based office to fight poverty or increase charity or any, any of its other stated aims. Now David Quo has written a book. It comes out on Monday. Keith Olbermann on MSNBC got an advanced copy of it. And this guy Quo is swinging for the fences this time. Number one. He says Karl Rove would meet with all these evangelical leaders and pay them all the slip service, and then he would call them the nuts behind closed doors. Number two, he says Bush knowingly lied about the amount of money he was really putting into new faith-based programs. Number three, the White House ginned up fake information about religious groups being blocked from hiring who they wanted to hire or getting government contracts in order to justify the need for this office. And number four, here's how Keith Olbermann reported it last night. The office was also literally a taxpayer-funded part of the Republican campaign machinery. In 2002, Quo says, the office decided to hold roundtable events for threatened incumbents with faith and community leaders, using the aura of our White House power to get a diverse group of faith and community leaders to a nonpartisan event discussing how best to help poor people in their area. White House Political Affairs Director Ken Melman quote, loved the idea and gave us our marching orders. That's Keith Olbermann reporting on David Quo's book last night on MSNBC. 
the faith-based office, according to the guy who was the number two guy in the office, targeted 20 congressional Republican races in the last midterm elections four years ago. And they used this supposed public office, this nonpartisan pro-religion compassion agency, to organize Republican partisan campaign events. You and I bankrolled that, by the way. This is part of the federal government that we pay for in tax dollars. Spitting in the eye of the religious patsies they have been stringing along for six years now, and then breaking federal law to turn religious interests toward partisan political ends. I'm mad as a liberal that they're using the federal government for Republican campaigning. Sure, that's infuriating, right? But if I'm a religious conservative right now, I am more than infuriated. If you are a religious conservative right now, it has got to hurt that these people think that you're stupid. They think that you can be led by the nose to any fetid cesspool anywhere in this polity and that they can get you to drink that filthy water whenever they want to over and over and over again for years now with you always coming back for more always showing your fealty your base loyalty to these guys no matter how many times they tell you to drink out of that polluted ditch they think that you're just going to keep on doing it that's what they think of you if you're a religious conservative in this country with the lip service that they keep paying to their so-called evangelical base i don't think religious people and evangelical people are stupid. I think there are stupid people everywhere, but they're no more likely to be stupid if they're religious. And I don't think that the Republicans and the Bush Republicans are going, in particular are going to be able to keep getting away with this. Do you? Michelle Goldberg is a senior writer for Salon.com. Her first book, Kingdom Coming, The Rise of Christian Nationalism, is a detailed examination of the religious right in the United States. Aaron Sarver recently spoke with Goldberg about the book and the future of secular America. Can you describe what you mean by the term Christian nationalism? Basically, it's a kind of political ideology of most of the Christian right right now. And it has a revisionist history which holds that America was never meant to be a secular country, that the founders intended to create a conservative Christian nation, and that separation of church and state was a myth that was introduced by scheming, God-hating secularists about 100 years ago, and that America, to reclaim its greatness, needs to return to these mythical Christian roots. It means not necessarily a kind of Christian theocracy, Non-believers will be able to, in this vision of what America should be, will be able to worship as they please, as long as they kind of understand their place and understand that this is a country in which Christianity has both legal authority, is kind of component of our lawmaking, and also has a kind of cultural authority. You spend over two years going to rallies, conferences, and different churches across the United States. What were those experiences like on a personal level? Well, I should say... It wasn't really over two years. You know, I'd been reporting on the subject on and off for years and then spent a year doing it really just doing nothing else. On the one hand, people were often incredibly friendly and welcoming. 
which is not really what you would expect, especially since the rhetoric in a lot of these places is so overtly hostile to people like me kind of as a class. You know, on the one hand, people are like are pumping their fists in the air as somebody talks about the kind of traitorous elites of the socialist news media and the God-hating ACLU, and they're pretty much describing me and everyone I love. But most people can communicate with other human beings on a human level in a way that in certain ways transcends politics, but it's a mistake to think that because you have a friendly relationship with someone that their politics are somehow no longer important or that their ideology has softened in any way. In the book you write that, by and large, the evangelical movement has rejected racism and instead chosen to focus their attacks on gay rights. Why reject one form of discrimination so rooted in America and embrace another? There's a couple of reasons. First of all, I think there's genuine recognition among some people that they were on the wrong side of the civil rights movement and that, in fact, they were on the wrong side of one of the greatest Christian religious movements in American history, which kind of fills them with shame. And now you have this very interesting thing of a lot of the leaders of this movement trying to appropriate the legacy of Martin Luther King and act as if, because he was his great religious leader, that they're actually just his kind of descendants. Alveda King, who is his niece and who's a conservative evangelical, is a very, very popular figure on the Christian nationalist circuit, and she seems to give the kind of King imprimatur to this whole movement. You also see a lot of these anti-gay rallies being framed as what they call racial reconciliation rallies, where you'll see white pastors and black pastors kind of joining hands and the white pastors apologizing for their previous history of racism. But now we need to stand together against the menace of the kind of secularist and the homosexual agenda. One of the easiest ways to bind people together is through a mutual enemy. One of the most popular kind of anti-gay organizing videos is called Gay Rights Special Rights, and it's directed at black churches, and it's all about how quote-unquote homosexual agenda is kind of appropriating the noble legacy of the civil rights movement. One of the difficulties of engaging the movement in dialogue seems to be that they aren't interested in facts regarding public policy, whether it's abstinence-only education, or the reproductive rights of women. So how can we engage the Christian right in public policy debates if they're not willing to be honest about what works and what doesn't? I'm not sure you can engage the core of the movement. I think that what you can do is try to marginalize them. And the most difficult thing, I think, is communicating to the broader public that We're not talking here about two equivalent sets of facts or two equivalent sets of scientific data that need to be aired out and debated because one of the things that the Christian right has been very clever about doing is creating these parallel institutions, parallel scientific organizations. I mean, and not just the Christian right. The broader right has done this as well with, you know, everything from smoking to climate change. But the Christian right, you know, it's followed the strategy. So you have groups, kind of seemingly scientific-sounding groups, like the Medical Institute for Sexual Health, which exist to try to prove that condoms don't work in preventing sexually transmitted diseases and that we should be teaching abstinence. The arguments that they present sound secular. They sound scientific. And increasingly in the Bush administration, you're seeing people from these organizations be given really important positions within the federal bureaucracy, within 
within the Department of Health and Human Services, for example, so that they're making really important decisions. The priority is not empirical evidence. The priority is not some kind of rational conception of truth. It is biblical truth. And you can go to seminars where they'll teach you how to translate your biblically-derived ideology into language that will sound acceptable in the secular sphere. At the end of the book, you compare the goals of Christian nationalists to those of some Muslim fundamentalists. In your research for the book, did you get a sense of the Christian right being aware that they are aligned ideologically with, say, the Taliban? Well, this is something that I think is really fascinating, because on most levels, there's enormous hostility between Christian and Muslim fundamentalists. You have people like Franklin Graham talking about Islam being a very evil and wicked religion, and you have kind of enormous support for this crusader vision of the war on terror among the movement. But yet on the international level, and this I really find fascinating, something that's happened over the last 10 years is a lot of these cultural war battles have kind of gone international. There are these huge fights at the United Nations over things like the um, CEDA Treaty, the um, Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, which doesn't seem like that big of a deal in America, but actually can be a pretty big deal for countries that sign it because it allows women to bring court cases if they've suffered some kind of horrific abuse. It allows them to seek legal redress within their own courts. You're seeing an attempt to block any measures at the UN that would encourage or expand feminism or children's rights or reproductive rights. And to do that, there's this very, very strange but strong and open alliance between American fundamentalist Protestants, who has been, you know, in many cases put on official U.S. delegations by the Bush administration, some kind of hardline Catholics from the Vatican, and then Islamic blocs from Iran, Saudi Arabia, the Sudan, Somalia. When other countries come to the UN and look at these issues, this is how the breakdown is. On the one hand, you have Canada, Europe, Australia, Japan in this one bloc, and then you have the America, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Vatican bloc. You just heard an interview with Michelle Goldberg, author of Kingdom Coming, The Rise of Christian Nationalism. The Met, uh, the Met Office's Hadley Center for Climate Prediction and Research, where I believe you interned, Jack. Oh, of course. Three it's, times. It's in Bournemouth, of course. Um, uh, I can't tell you the number of uh, ladies I was with in Bournemouth. <laughs> uh, drought uh, threatening the lives of millions. 
will spread across half the land surface of the Earth in the coming century, about 100 years from now, uh, because of global warming. Those are new predictions from that. Those are the leading climate scientists uh, in Britain. Uh, and uh, the findings released at the climate, uh, uh, the climate Clinic of the Conservative Party Conference, <laughs> the Climate Clinic at the Conservative Party Conference, that's funny, drew astonished and dismayed reactions from aid agencies and development specialists. And here's one thing that, that I like, and this is one reason I think also why the the the, the uh, much of the Christian right has embraced the global warming movement. Uh, Andrew Pendleton of Christian Aid says this is genuinely terrifying. It's a death sentence for many millions of people in the world. It will mean migration off the land at levels we have not seen before and at levels poor countries uh, cannot cope with. Uh, well, I'm ready with one, one of my first declarations of today. We live in a world of cavemen. <laughs> we do. I mean, look, here there's two different things. One is... Well, there's all these scientists who have spent hundreds of years doing, you know, at this point, millions of hours of research trying to figure out how this world uh, functions. They got the atoms, they got the quarks, they got the string theory, they got the Big Bang, they got all this stuff. And then you got a bunch of goofballs um, that say, oh, well, I heard from, you know, Paul who said that, you know, John saw that that dude from Nazareth did this. And since he said it about 2,000 years ago, and I think we think he said it. Right, we think he said it. And I know I didn't see the guy. No, I didn't see it. Right. I wrote the book 40 years later. Right. Um, that's probably the better way to go. Now, <laughs> look, I, the reason I see we live in a world of came in, and a lot of you that little sing might be religious, and you have faith, and God bless you, and but you're wrong. You're wrong, and, it, well, you're, and, you're wrong. Hold on. and you rule the world. You you're, rule the world. The, the people who are religious rule the world, and you're all dead wrong. Well, you're wrong. You're not all dead wrong. You're certainly not wrong if you're a person of faith. You are wrong if you believe it literally. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. a hugely important distinction. That's a big, big distinction. But you got these people, and the problem is the cavemen now are ooh, in charge. So you got George Bush, who, you know, as far as we can tell, and believes in Armageddon and all that, based on what he said to Bob Woodward, believes he's chosen by God, believes in all these goofy little interpretations of the Bible that aren't even within miles of true. And then on uh, global warming, <laughs> every scientist in the world agrees. They're in a panic. Every report done on the matter agrees. They're in a panic. It's it's happening. It's caused by man. It is definitely happening. Now you got droughts by the end, by 2100 that are extreme droughts that are, where there's going to be no water that are going to cover 30 percent of the landmass of the earth. And the guy in charge, the caveman in charge, goes, oh, no, hey, no, I don't believe in global warming. I believe he said. Uh <laughs> yeah, he probably said that too. And he also said, I believe global warming is a comma, like Iraq. Um, I was listening yesterday to the uh, National uh, Public. Somebody get him off the short bus. Jesus. No, somebody put him on the short bus. <laughs> Whatever. Get him out of there, man. Like, the playoffs are happening. Shit. Somebody send in a relief pitcher. This guy's right. overmatched. Yeah, we need he to... knows better than all the scientists in the world. That's what I like is that so many on the right, uh, uh, you know, pretending that it's politicians trying to sell us global warming. These are the scientists. These guys don't rush into anything. They are the slowest people in the history of the world. There is 924 peer-reviewed scientific studies on global warming. Out of those 924, 924 said global warming is real, it's happening now, and it's caused by man. But our president, that dude knows better. 
Right. I mean, that's not 924 scientists. That's peer-reviewed. That's thousands of scientists who all agree. Tens of but thousands. But notice. That caveman living on, fortunately, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue knows better. I would. Rest assured. Uh, on National Public Radio yesterday, I'll tell this story very quickly. I was listening. It was a, a debate about uh, 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 faith, and uh, uh, and there was a fellow named uh, uh, Russell Johnson. He's a he's a pastor in in Iowa, and and was trying to sell that he's no that to the criticism. He, everything was Foxian and Orwellian in his reversal. That that how dare sort of the uh, the secularists claim that they have reason we have reason he says i used to be an agnostic a lie i'm sure um and uh, and and i use reason he said and science to justify my belief in creationism and of course he sure. was in the intelligent design he kept talking about you know uh because they and it's a phrase that i'm sure millions of others have used thousands of others have used but it was the first time i heard it and he just he's like so now the secular is that we're supposed to believe that we went from ooze to you through the zoo i don't think so yeah you don't think so because you're an Idiot. Ooze to you through the Zuma. You've probably heard that before. I'd never had but, I was you know, fascinated no, but, by it. No, I haven't heard that before. But what he, this clown believes, though, instead is, oh, that, you know, you take the quarks and you take the atoms and you take the neutrons. The next thing you know, you take Adam's rib and it becomes a woman. <laughs> uh, come on, man. And we're losing this debate. You know, the great majority of the world thinks that that's wrong. And that, uh, you know, Adam and Eve and the snakes and all the clown-ass things that are happening in the three main religious texts are true. Well, how, how are we losing this debate to these clowns? Well, but I'll tell you part of the reason how we're losing it, because we're not bothering to challenge them, because everybody's so scared. Oh, don't say that. Don't say that. Oh, my God. You'll offend them. You'll offend them. Yeah, I'm ready to offend them, because they're offending me, because they're driving us off a cliff. We're well, 30% of the land mass. We're going to lose it. Why? Because people don't believe in science. Morning edition from NPR News. I'm Lynn Neary. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Next time you see an asparagus floating in a bathtub, as we all occasionally do, you will instantly think of Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, because as we're about to hear, floating asparagus contributed to Darwin's theory. This true story can now be told by NPR's Robert Krolwich. 150 years ago, when people asked, how come you can go to Australia and there are kangaroos hopping, hopping around everywhere, but you go to places that look almost exactly the same, say, um, grasslands in Africa, and there are no kangaroos. Now, why is that? Why don't the same kinds of places have the same kinds of animals? Well, 150 years ago, there was an answer. It was a simple one, says science writer David Quammen. God has made kangaroos and put them in Australia. So God did it. He decided. That was what God wanted to do. 
God created every species individually and put them down wherever they are. I, and actually, I call that special creation plus special delivery. So that was the explanation, even among some of the most learned people around. But then, says Quammen, Darwin came along and said, wait a minute. I don't think that's the explanation. I think these things all evolved from common ancestors. So the reason you find kangaroos only in Australia and New Guinea, he said, it's not God's doing. It's because the earliest kangaroo ancestors evolved there and then they spread out, but they couldn't get across the water that surrounds Australia. They went about as far as they could go. Every plant, every animal that you see, Darwin proposed, got where it is today on its own. Animals and plants must disperse. They must be capable of dispersing in order to explain what we see on the planet by way of evolution. So it was critical to Darwin's theory to show how living things got to where they are today. And this can get kind of tricky. For example, uh, cabbages. You can find cabbage plants on islands near Antarctica. Now, how would a cabbage get there? Well, either God put it there or it got there on its own. Yeah, but how does a cabbage seed cross an ocean on its own? Yeah, how? Well, it turns out that Darwin obsessed about this question, vegetable voyaging. For years, he concocted experiments, and experiments that were so delightful and so unlike what you'd imagine. Exactly, this, yeah. exactly. You remember the old uh, TV show, Watch Mr. Wizard? Yeah. That was Darwin. That was Charles Darwin. Here's a perfect example. Darwin wondered how might a radish travel. Well, he imagined that a radish might accidentally get swept to sea on a windy day, but now the question, do radishes float? Well, Darwin had his butler, Mr. Parcel, pour salt water, kind of like ocean water, into a tub, and into that tub they plopped radishes and carrots and rhubarb and celery. And Mr. Parcelow was he was one of these proper English butlers. Absolutely, yeah. I guess there aren't too many other butlers in the vicinity who have to do this sort of thing. Probably not, no. But Mr. Parslow also dropped in seeds. He tried cabbage seeds, radish seeds, pepper, uh, cress, as in water cress. And then they watched to see what floated for how long. Then they'd remove the wet seeds and they'd plant them to see if they would still grow. Some did better than others. With radish seeds... He got 42 days worth of floating. And with cress... Uh, 42 days plus a wonderful quantity of mucus, Darwin said, <laughs> if I recall correctly. So it's stinky, but it's yeah, getting there. Sli a slimy mess that still travels the ocean. And, and, and that's typical of Darwin, that he would not say, uh, you know, a disgusting or a gross quantity of mucus. He would say a wonderful quantity of mucus because everything about the natural world was wondrous to this guy. Okay, so that's 42 days for the radish, 42 days for the crest. How much now for dried asparagus seed? 85 days they stayed afloat. 85 days. <laughs> and then he took them out and planted the seeds, and they germinated. So let's do the math, Darwin did. If an asparagus seed can float for 85 continuous days and an ocean current moves roughly 38 miles a day, let's multiply 85 times 38, that means... An asparagus can sail 3,230 miles across the sea. That's, that's like Magellan. Asparagus is king. <laughs> well, at least among those Darwin looked at, yeah. So yes, ocean-crossing vegetables are possible. But Darwin didn't stop there. 
One day, his eight-year-old son Francis said to him, You know, Dad, dead birds float, kind of like ships. And his father said, Yeah. Uh, he seems to have been a, a terrific father. So Francis said, Well, why don't we feed a bird some seeds, so the, the seeds get inside the bird, and then, you know, shoot the bird, and then pop it in the tub, the corpse, and let it float for a while. So he suggested that, and Darwin said, You bet, Francis, that's a great idea. Then after a month or whatever, they opened up the dead carcass, and they pulled out the seeds inside, and they planted them. And found that those seeds also germinated. Thereby establishing the principle that seeds can either float on their own, or they can hitch a ride. As passengers inside a bird, uh -huh. as passengers attached to the foot of a bird. Which then led Darwin back to animals and to the last science article he ever published, in which he proposed the possibility of flying clams. Now, at this point, Darwin wasn't so well. He's suffering from degenerative heart disease, but he's still working. He's still very much alive mentally. And one day, he gets a letter from a shoe salesman, a young guy named Walter Crick. Now, the way the story goes, you imagine Crick out in the woods collecting beetles when he just happened to see it was a water beetle. And when he got down, he looked real close. And attached to one of the legs was a little clam, a little freshwater clam. A and very little clam. Yeah, very little. Small enough that the beetle scarcely noticed it. And Crick thought, hmm. That's kind of curious. So he wrote Darwin. And he said, you know, I think you might be interested in this. And sure enough, Darwin wrote right back. And he asked him all kinds of questions that Crick couldn't answer because, after all, he was, he was in the shoe business. So he did something better than, you know, fake it. He sent the beetle with the shell attached to Darwin. He mailed he, it. He just popped it he into an envelope? He popped it into an envelope. Was the, said, was the clam still attached to the beetle? It what? was. It was. So he said, okay, well, you take a look for yourself. Yeah. So a day or two later, the beetle and the clam did arrive at Darwin's house in an envelope. But they were separated now. And the beetle? The beetle was dying by the time it that he got feeling it. Very it well. wasn't feeling very well. But right away, Darwin could see a possibility here. This is very interesting. This goes back to the whole subject of dispersal, of how creatures can travel from one place to another. Maybe this little clam can fly from uh -huh. place to place. Right, because this beetle is a swimming beetle, but it can also fly. So maybe clams can fly from pond to pond hitchhiking on a beetle. Darwin couldn't prove this because he felt kind of badly watching that little beetle he had suffer. So this is why I mention it at the end of my book, because it's such a wonderful um, example of the kind of fellow this guy, Charles Darwin, was. He writes back to, to W.D. Crick and says, Dear Mr. Crick, As the wretched beetle is still feebly alive, he wrote, I've put it in a bottle with chopped laurel leaves. Now, he knew that those leaves give off a gas that would very gently help this beetle die. In one of the very last acts of his life, he decided that he needed to put this beetle out of its misery. And then a few weeks after that, uh, Darwin died himself. There is a postscript to this story. It turns out that years and years later, the shoe salesman, Walter Crick, had some grandchildren, and one of Walter's grandsons just happens to be... Francis Crick, the co the, the Francis the Crick, Francis Crick co-discoverer of the structure of DNA with James Watson. So perhaps the greatest champion of evolution in the 20th century who deciphered the structure and the code of DNA both, that guy's grandpa? His grandpa was a pen pal sharing beetle specimens with Darwin. And how strange and wonderful is that? David Quammen's new biography of Darwin is called The Reluctant Mr. Darwin. I'm Robert Krulwich for NPR News in New York.
Our show today will feature my interview with PBS veteran Bill Moyers. I scratch my head, Jim, and I say, you know, my gosh, the, the world's aflame with intolerance, and these true believers are filling buckets with kerosene uh, to throw on it. Before entering broadcasting, Bill Moyer served as deputy director of the Peace Corps in the Kennedy administration and was special assistant to President Lyndon B. Johnson from 1963 through 1967, including two years as White House press secretary. His new PBS show aired this summer, and it is called Faith and Reason and is now available on podcast. We'll also have our regular segment, Voices from the Streets. And, of course, the theme for our show, The Good News, is how we can turn around from mutual destruction to learning to live together. And I'd like to start with my own faith tradition, urging them to find the way to peace. But before I get to that, I'd like to say a little bit more about why I'm talking with Bill Moyers. Bill Moyers has been a friend for a long, long time. I'd like to call him the and man. And that is because there are people who divide up this versus that. But Bill is a guy who brings together pragmatism and idealism. He is a person who comes out of the South as a white man, but he is clearly a member of the family of humankind. I see Bill as a guy who, yeah, he's very pragmatic about issues about security. He understands that. But at the same time, he is passionate about our call to liberty and justice for all. He balances the rational and the passional. He is a guy who likes to speak about values, but who does not wish to do so out of dogmas of one religious tradition or the other. And although he's had theological training, and at least once we thought he might even choose to be a clergy person, he has chosen to speak about the deepest issues of life without the religious jargon or without a particular doctrinaire perspective, thereby enabling all of us to speak to the issues that matter to most of us in the world day by day. He's a real philosopher. By that I mean he loves wisdom, and he has a nose for sniffing out where there are insights that most of us have not known about. I think he is perhaps, maybe, one of the persons who lifts Americans above the chatter of meaningless exchanges about partisan issues to the deeper concerns for what makes life worthwhile and what will have the prospect of sustaining us toward the next generations. So I think you're going to enjoy hearing our exchange today. If you're just joining us, this is The Time Is Now on Air America Radio, and I'm Jim Forbes. Let's get down to the issue of now. Here's my conversation with Bill Moyers. He'll tell us about how his Faith and Reason series got started and what he learned from novelist Salman Rushdie. Tell me something about why you started this Faith and Reason series. It's hard to say that it got started. There's a great divide that's open between uh, the religious and the secular today. But most people don't don't live such one-sided lives. Most of us live on a swinging bridge between faith and and, and reason, between doubt and belief. Or, or we ride a seesaw. One day the 
faith end is up and the other end the doubt end is up. I think that's I think that's how we're wired uh to be both seeking and skeptical. Then I read a story about evangelical leaders trying to punish judges who aren't true believers. I, I, I read a, uh, an account in the newspaper of new Saudi Arabian textbooks uh, still teaching Muslim children not to make friends of, quote, false faiths. Then I pick up one day the new uh, platform by the Republican uh, State Convention in Texas calling church and state separation a myth. Then I hear some Democrats on the radio trying to imitate the God talk of Republicans. And I scratch my head, Jim, and I say, you know, my gosh, the, the world's aflame with intolerance. And these true believers are filling buckets with kerosene uh, to throw on it. So I think got to do something about that. Got to show people there are more ways to talk about religion than we're hearing on the cable channels or getting on talk, uh, right-wing talk radio because the people I know seem to move back and forth in the twilight of the mind, you know, between doubt and belief. And then I notice a small story that Salman Rushdie, the novelist, has asked a hundred and some odd writers from around the world to come to New York to talk about faith and reason. I call him up and ask him what's behind that. And he says, well, you know, a year ago, he's the president of uh, Penn, the Penn American Center. And Penn is uh, stands for Poets, Essayists, and Novelists. It's an organization, the oldest ongoing uh, human rights organization in the world today. Rushdie says to me, you know, I had a panel on this at last year's conference, and it was so popular, I decided we should give the whole conference this year to the subject of faith and reason. So I looked at the list of people who are coming. Rushdie, Jeanette Winterson from England, David Grossman from Israel, Mary Gordon from New York, Colin McGinn from uh, University of Miami, British philosopher, Margaret Atwood from Canada, Martin Amos from London, and Richard Rodriguez from San Francisco. And I think, my goodness, what a pantheon of creativity there is. And they're coming to talk about faith and reason. So that's how the idea that had been itching for a long time turned into a real scratch. I think <laughs> of you as kind of always keeping the antenna out. Where is there going to be quality conversation? You know, I grew up in the South, as you did, Jim. I grew up on, at 801 East Austin Street in Marshall, Texas, a small house, two-bedroom house on a small lot surrounded by other houses. Um, my dad was a, was, a, was a working man, never made more than $100 a, a week in his, in his life. I can see my mother now leaning across the back fence talking to Mrs. Platt next door. Or I can see her actually leaning out the window and talking to Mrs. Platt's daughter, Marie Davis. I can remember lying in my bed at night. My bed was just a few feet from the sidewalk. It would be late in the evening. People would be sitting on the front porch, the Mangums across the street, the Burbages mm. uh, to the right, uh, people walking down the street coming home from the movies or from church. And there was just this constant buzz of conversation. And I, I'm not a detective as much as I am a, a listener, where I, I was taught as a Southerner and as a young journalist to listen to what other people were saying, not just to write it down but to actually hear what they were saying when they weren't even saying it. Whenever God shine a light on me Open up my eyes so I can see When I look up in the darkest night I know everything is gonna be alright. In deep. Con- 
I want to go back to what James said earlier, too. He's right. The country's founders were not, you know, these fundamentalist Christians. These fundamentalists today pretend that they are, but they weren't. I mean, you read their readings of Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and a lot of these other guys, and you go, they were, they were Jews. Whoa! They were, to all, they were all Jews. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Well, the Jews were around the world, so yeah. it makes sense. No, like Thomas Jefferson, they my favorite st- they story. Were, they were starting wars. Yeah, well, they did start one. That's true. Um, surprising, they weren't Jews actually. <laughs> um, so, it's, you go to Thomas Jefferson. You know what he did? He read the Bible. He didn't like it. He thought it didn't make too much sense. So he cut out all the parts that he thought didn't make any sense, and he threw them away. And then in the end, you had a Thomas Jefferson Bible. All the stuff like feed the poor, be nice to each other. Right. I, you know that we should bring that Jefferson Bible back. I like yeah. that Jefferson. I bet Bible. he didn't throw out the part about slavery. Uh, and I was unfortunate. <laughs> All right, real quick, let's go to Michael in Maine. Hey, Michael. Hey, guys, how you doing? Good. Yo, what's going on, man? Hey, I'd like to let you know about a book uh, that connects the development of primitive man from uh, magic into religion and the abuse of power that goes along with that. Rock and roll. Uh, it's uh, The Golden Bow by Sir James Frazier. Huh, The Golden Who? And he... Sir James Fraser, F R A S E R, I yeah, think yeah. is how he spells it. No, the Golden What? Bow. Golden Bow, B O U G H. Oh, okay. And uh, and, and it's, it's, he's connecting uh, old religions from and uh, old cultures from around the world, and it, the development from uh, the primitive man from from the belief of magic in his everyday life. To, when he figured out that doesn't work, then he kind of moved on to a higher power thing of religion and the people that practice it and their abuse of that from early man. All right, Michael, you thank you for the call and thank you for the information. I actually will check that out. That sounds like a, a, a great book, actually. And uh, you've given and thank you for giving me the opportunity to be offensive one more time. Are you going to offend the believers in magic now? Don't do it. Don't do it. Okay, understand that when they put together the Do religious... you believe in magic? <laughs> in a young girl's heart? <laughs> they, when they put the uh, major religions together, and I'm not just talking about Christianity, and don't take it that way. Judaism's completely wrong as well, and of course so is Islam. They didn't understand how the world worked. They thought the world was flat. They thought the stars were holes in the sky. Right. Okay? And they believed in all these magical things. That's why I think what Michael is saying is, makes, is, a, is a great point. And they were, oh, what does the great God want? What does Zeus want? What does, you know, the Zoroastrian God, the sun God want? Uh, what does Jesus of Nazareth want? What does, you know, Yahweh want? And they, they were, because they didn't know. They didn't know about quarks. They didn't know about atoms. They didn't know about any of this stuff. And then... But we got stuck in those times for some reason. Like, the science didn't. The science developed. We learned a lot more things, and we realized, whoa, that stuff doesn't make any sense. But for some reason, 90% of the world, 80% of the world, got stuck in 2,000 years ago, and they never moved beyond it, even though we've learned so much more than what those people were wildly guessing at back then. We want to believe so badly. Everybody wants to believe. And by the way, uh, uh, you know, I'm Jewish, and, and you know, as Jack said, it's as it's, it's nonsensical as any of the others, the chosen people. If, look, <laughs> if God had chosen a group of people, I think he would have chosen better athletes. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, I am very excited about this. Huge news. In classic, best-of-the-left fashion, I'm about a year and a half behind the curve. But, I'm catching up. And the show now has its very own call-in number 
for a comment from you, the audience, to be played on the show, at the end of the show, uh, kind of like where I'm talking right now. And, um, you know, it's, it's all part of this effort to make this show more of a community, more of a back and forth instead of a one-way street as it has been for so long. This is, uh, it's really a plan I've had for, um, almost as long as I can remember and, you know, never really got around to it and now I have. So what you can do is, uh, call in, uh, talk about, uh, the show, talk about old episodes, talk about, uh, anything you like, make comments on, uh, you know, general political topics if you are passionate about, uh, anything and want to share your opinions, please do so. Uh, you know, if you, if you keep your comments kind of within the realm of one general, uh, you know, political idea, then you know that that, that themed show is going to be coming up, uh, pretty soon. And, and I can slip you right in there and, uh, and you will be heard along with all of the, uh, the opinions of the professionals. So, what you can do is call 206-984-3907 and uh, give us your two cents. It doesn't get much easier than that, so uh, give us a call. Tell us who you are, you know, where you're from, what you want to talk about, uh, you know, any uh, any projects you're working on. Feel free to plug, uh, you know, plug yourself a little bit. If you got a website, shout it out. And uh, incidentally, if you have the capability of recording yourself, uh, you know, like in a microphone on the computer uh, or anything like that, you can go ahead and send me MP3 files just to, you know, to the email address hippysympathizer at gmail.com and, uh, you know, that, that'll get you a little bit uh, better quality audio, but uh, for the rest of you, uh, the phone will work just fine. So uh, that number one more time, 206 984 3907 or email your audio clips to hippysympathizer at gmail.com. You can find uh, more information uh, or pretty much just the same information on the website at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. And I look forward to hearing from all of you. Have a good one, everybody.